Good morning and uh, welcome to our morning service here at Zion. We want to welcome all of you and especially those of you who may be visiting. Uh, welcome to those of you on live stream as well. Uh, we have a lot going on uh, right now here in our church and I want to highlight just a, a few things. Uh, first of all, it's time to shuffle uh, the dinner for eight groups. Uh, if you haven't signed up for that, if you haven't been part of that but would like to, uh, there is a sign-up sheet for new people in the fellowship hall. So if you, if you want to be in a dinner for eight group and you haven't been in one yet, you can sign up today. We're also looking for people who will serve as uh, kind of point people for the groups. doesn't mean you have to host it every time, uh, but we need leaders for each group. And so if you would be willing uh, to be a leader, kind of coordinate when you're meeting and where you're meeting, uh, there's a sign-up sheet for that as well. So two different sign-up sheets, one for those of you uh, who want to get involved and uh, haven't been, and then another one for those of you who are willing to be point people. Uh, a couple of fundraisers coming up this week. Uh, first of all, Wednesday night, the Dinner for Blast is for Impact, which is our high school group. Uh, a lot of you have signed up already for Blast this Wednesday, but if you haven't done that, uh, again, this is a, a support night for our youth group, and so you can sign up for that today in the Fellowship Hall. This Saturday morning is the Cadets Pancake Breakfast. Uh, you can buy tickets at the door, uh, but you can also buy them in advance from uh, any of the cadets. So that's coming up this Saturday. Uh, I encourage you to consider going to that as a, a way to support our cadets ministry. Uh, Main Street Day is coming up in about three weeks. Uh, I mentioned this last Sunday that we're going to have a booth there. And uh, we need people, of course, to man that booth. We have three time slots. Uh, the middle time slot is already filled but we do need some people for both the beginning and the ending time slots. And so if you would be willing to work a shift, uh, we're looking for people who can do that. Uh, you can sign up for that in the fellowship hall as well. Yosemite bus trip is October 25th. Uh, also, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, visitors, you'll notice that there's a card, a little gold sheet in the bulletin. If you're not a member here at Zion, but you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church and you trust Jesus alone as your Savior, uh, we invite you to partake with us. We simply ask that if you would fill this out, drop this in the offering bag when it comes by, and again, uh, participate in the sacrament with us. Uh, one final thing to bring to your attention, and that is that uh, Tom Brown, who is currently serving as the pastor of a church in South Dakota, will be here this coming week as a candidate for our director of student ministries position. Uh, there will be a, a question and answer uh, with Tom next Sunday morning after the service. It'll be here in the sanctuary, and so it'll be a good ch chance for us to get to know him. He'll probably tell his biography. We can ask him questions. And so we would remind you or encourage you to be here and stay here for that. Um, in that connection, all Sunday school classes from junior high through adult will be canceled that day so that we all can be in here. The other classes, pre-K all the way up through elementary school age, will still meet. Uh, but the other classes, junior high through adult, uh, will not meet, so all of us can be here for that Q&A. Other than that, I think everything else you can take note of on your own. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me as we have a moment of silent prayer, and we ask the Lord to bless this service, so let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we pray today that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we would give to you the glory that you are due. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Our call to worship is from Psalm 32. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Receive now the greeting of our God and King, grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together number 380, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. We'll sing the first three stanzas and let's remain standing as we sing. have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a a pew Bible somewhere in front of you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, In just a moment, we're going to read verses 26 through 31. 
The book of Hebrews um, contains a, a number of warnings, uh, warnings about the, the danger of turning away from Christ, turning away from the gospel, and this is one of those warnings, Hebrews 10, uh, beginning at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, this is one of those warnings. And this is not a warning for people out there. This is a warning for people in here. Uh, This is a warning today that it's possible to sit in a church every Sunday and hear the gospel every Sunday and be raised in a a Christian home all of your childhood and teenage years. It's possible to do all of those things and, and to hear the truth of God's word over and over, but to reject it. To not believe it, to reject Christ. And, and maybe the person who does this thinks that they're safe because they're part of the church, but, but again, we're told here in Hebrews 10 that the person who lives in, in persistent unbelief, the person who lives in a, a persistent rejection of Christ, even being in the context of the covenant community, Hebrews says there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Well, what that means very simply is that there's no other way for that person to be saved if they continue to reject Christ. All that awaits that person who refuses to turn from their sin, who refuses to embrace the Lord Jesus, is judgment. And so this this passage this morning is a reminder to us that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only one who can can save you and and take you to heaven. Children, you're going to hear all throughout your life, you're going to hear people who will say to you, there are many different ways to get to heaven. Sure, Christianity is one of them, but, but there are many paths to God. Jesus is one, but, but there are others. Children, you will hear that. Young people, you will hear that. Adults, you've already heard that. It's a, a constant message, coexist. We all can, can go to heaven through our own path. This passage this morning tells us that's simply not true. That's simply not true. Acts chapter 4, Peter says there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
This is the message that we proclaim Sunday after Sunday. This is the message that we find great joy and comfort in, that Christ is our only hope. And I want to I issue a warning to any of you this morning who, who may be living in rejection of that truth, who, who may think, well, I don't need that. The, the warning is that there's no other way. There's no other way to God but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're thankful this morning as God's people that he has opened our eyes to see that truth. There's a lot of people out there who sadly don't see that truth and we pray that they would one day, but we're thankful this morning that we understand that truth and that we have the the comfort of knowing Christ. One of the most dearly loved parts of the Heidelberg Catechism is the, the very beginning of the Catechism. It talks about our only comfort in life and in death. And that is that we have been redeemed, we have been saved, we have been forgiven through the perfect work of Christ. And we find great joy and, and comfort in that this morning. Don't reject that truth. Don't reject the gospel. Don't think that you can be good enough. Don't think that, that you can find other, some other way to God. It is only through Christ that we find true and lasting comfort. And we're going to sing of that now. We're going to sing Lord's Day 1 of the Catechisms, number 480 in the hymnal, I have no other comfort which life and death endures than that I am my Savior's whose death my life secures. It's a familiar tune. We're going to sing all four stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we have gathered for worship this morning, uh, we know first of all that, that you are the great and mighty and majestic God. You are the only true God. You are the one who created and who sustains all things by your powerful word. And we also know, Lord, that if we were left to ourselves, we would be utterly unworthy to be in your presence. But how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. How thankful we are for your love for us in sending your son. We thank you for his perfect work, for the salvation and the righteousness and the eternal life that he has earned for us. And now, Lord, forgiven of our sins and clothed in his perfect righteousness, we come into your presence with joy and thanksgiving. As we just sang together, this truly is our only comfort, that we belong to the one who has fully paid for all of our sins, who has set us free from the devil, who has given us the Holy Spirit, and who has promised us eternal life. Lord, we also know what a serious thing it is to reject this message, what a serious thing it is to to hear the gospel week after week after week and yet live in apathy and even rebellion against you. We pray for those we know who have had the, the tremendous spiritual privilege of growing up in a Christian home, of being in church, of hearing the good news about Jesus, but who now reject it. Lord, we grieve for them and we pray that it would be your will to open their minds and hearts to see, to understand, to know their sin, and to come to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. We pray for your continued hand of blessing upon all the ministries here at Zion. We pray in particular for those things that will be taking place this week, for the Bible studies that we'll be meeting, for BLAST, for the fundraisers, for our youth group, and for cadets. Lord, may all of these programs bring honor and glory to you. We pray for those among us as as well as those we know outside of our church who are struggling, whether it's a physical or, or emotional or spiritual struggle. We pray for your hand to guide them. We pray that your word and your spirit would strengthen and comfort them. We pray especially for Bill DeCock and Tony Visser. We ask that you would bless them both as they endure ongoing serious health concerns. We also pray for Mel Mulder as he recovers from knee replacement surgery. We thank you that that surgery went well, and we pray that you would bless Mel in his recovery. We pray for Greg Cady, the youth director at Calvary Church. Lord, as he has been diagnosed with encephalitis, we we pray for wisdom for the doctors. We pray for complete healing and recovery for Greg. We pray for his family, that you would comfort them. We also pray for the family of Herman Prinz as Herman passed away this past week. We thank you that his earthly suffering is over, that he's now with you, and we pray that you would comfort Grace and the rest of the family in the midst of their sorrow. We pray now for the work of the Holy Spirit among us as we study your word this morning. Lord, help us to see the the great importance of the first chapter of the Bible and cause the truth of this passage to Leave us in awe and wonder of who you are. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We now give to the general fund and that offering will now be taken. Thank you, Glenn. Please take your Bibles and turn to the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to read 
Uh, just the first verse, you're all probably familiar with that, but I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at a lot of what's in this chapter together, not just the first verse. Uh, this morning we're going to start a, a series of sermons that I'm very excited about. Uh, that is a series on some of your favorite Bible stories. Um, I got almost uh, 60 cards from all of you, mostly children and teenagers, but some adults. Uh, children, especially, thank you so much for all of your suggestions. Uh, you guys are, are just as much a part of this church as any of the rest of us. And so uh, I, I want to thank you for giving me so many good ideas. Um, I'm planning to cover all of the passages that you have suggested. Uh, a number of you requested the same story. So there won't be 60 sermons. There's probably going to be 20 or 25 uh, for those of you wondering, the most popular vote-getters were Noah's Ark and David and Goliath, which we'll get to those eventually. But this morning, uh, we want to consider the story of creation. By the way, when I use the word story, um, I'm not using it in terms of a fictional or a make-believe story like uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. That's not what we're talking about. The, these stories in the Bible are things that really happened. Noah really built an ark. Um, Jonah was really inside a fish. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were really thrown into a fiery furnace. And what we're about to read really happened. So Genesis 1, 1, and then throughout the sermon we'll look at the rest of the passage. Notice what it says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Over the years, a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of time has been spent discussing what this verse means. And while it is certainly one of the most, if not the most, well-known verse in all of the Bible... It is also one that is very controversial. This verse raises all kinds of questions that people have. Does God exist? Did God really create all things? And did God really create all things in the way that Genesis 1 says he created all things? Now there are a lot of people today who don't believe what this verse says. They don't believe Genesis 1-1. They don't believe Genesis 1. They don't believe what it teaches. You, you have contemporary atheists, men like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, other people like that, who, who say that you can't square Genesis 1 with science. And, and they will say that if, if we claim that Genesis 1 is really true, that it's really history, they will say that, that we are unintelligent that we are backwards, and that we, were, we are quite unable to deal with reality. The sad thing, though, is it's not just atheists who think that way. Over the last decade or so, surveys have shown that a, a growing number of evangelical Christians believe the same thing. Since 2014, an every other year survey has been taken of evangelical Christians in this country. And one of the statements that has been proposed in this survey is this. Agree or disagree, modern science discredits the claims of Christianity. 
Modern science dis, uh, discredits the claims of Christianity. Agree or disagree? Since 2014, the response of, of evangelical Christians has pretty much been the same. 40% of evangelical Christians agree modern science discredits the claims of Christianity. And that basically means that, that modern science discredits what the Bible says here about creation. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's very troubling to me. It's troubling to hear that a that a large number of professing Christians thinks science trumps the Bible. Now, throughout the years, there have been those who have said, well, you know, you can, you can say that the Bible gets it wrong in matters of science and, and even history, but you can still hold to the core teachings of Scripture. Colleges and, and universities that were once very strongly orthodox have said that very thing. They have said Genesis 1 through 11 might not be true. It, it, it might just be a myth that's there to, to teach us some important truths, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the Bible isn't true. Or they will say something like, yeah, science shows that Genesis 1 and 2 is, is not literally true, but that doesn't mean that we can't be Christians anymore. I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think that the opening chapters of Genesis are unimportant or insignificant. I mean, if we can't trust God's word to be true about creation, can we trust it to be true about other matters? If, if Genesis 1 and 2 are wrong, can we trust what the Bible says about salvation? If Genesis 1 and 2 are wrong, can we trust what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus? If Genesis 1 and 2 are, are just a myth, can we trust the Bible in what it says about eternal life? Genesis 1 and 2 are every bit as much God's word as Psalm 23 or John 3.16. And, and this opening chapter of the Bible answers two questions that are of the utmost significance. First of all, how did this world get here? And then secondly, how did we get here? Children, those are big questions. Those are massive questions. Those are questions that have been asked for a long, long time. Questions that people have suggested many different answers to. But, but questions that God answers for us here in Genesis 1. So first of all, how did this world get here? There, there are very few places where you can go today where evolution is not taught, embraced, and held to as a scientific fact. Evolution, of course, is this idea that the, the world just happened to come into existence through some kind of chance process over millions and billions of years. If you go to a, a public school or university, if you hear someone give a a presentation on climate change, even if you go wine tasting, evolution is talked about as if it is a verified fact. Now, I'm not going to look at this this morning from the perspective of science. Uh, there, are, there are good resources out there if you want to do that, 
But my intention with you, of course, is to look at what the Bible says. What does God tell us about creation? What does God tell us about how this world came to be? And and what God tells us is summed up in this verse I just read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, notice that little phrase, the heavens and the earth. This is what is known as a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. A a merism is a statement in which two things make up a whole. For example, let's say you you lose your keys. And and you tell your spouse, I lost my keys, I got to go look for them. And And you come back and you say to your spouse, I searched high and low and I can't find my keys. That, that phrase is a merism. It's a, it's a way of saying high and low is a way of saying I looked everywhere and I can't find them. Merisms are also found in wedding vows for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In other words, you're, you're committing yourself to that person in every possible circumstance that you may face. And, and so when we are told here that God created the heavens and the earth, it, it's not God saying, I created the heavens, I created the earth, and the rest of it just evolved. That's just a, a, a poetic way of saying God created everything. Now, children, this is not the only place in the Bible that tells us that God is the creator. There are many other passages as well. The fourth commandment in Exodus 20 says that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Nehemiah chapter 9, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. John 1 says this about Jesus. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The clear plain, consistent, persistent teaching of the Bible is that God created all things. And how did he do it? Very simply, he created all things out of nothing by his spoken word. If you have your Bible open, notice verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Look at verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Then the end of verse 7 says, and it was so. Same thing in verse 9, same thing in verse 11, same thing in verse 14. All throughout the days of creation, God speaks and it is so. God created all things by speaking them into existence. Now, I think you would agree with me that that we can create some beautiful things. We we are sitting inside what what I think is a a beautiful sanctuary. You you can go to museums in this country and all throughout the world, and you can see beautiful pieces of art that people created. But in order to create those things, we need pre-existing materials, When this church was built a number of years ago, people didn't just walk onto this property and say, let there be a church building. And there was a church building. Pre-existing materials were needed to to build this building. Children, let's say you want to draw a picture for your parents. You don't just sit down at your dinner table with nothing 
and say, let there be a picture. And bam, there's a picture. You can't do that. We can create things and we can design things, but we need pre-existing material to do so. We need wood and steel and paint and crayons and paper. We need stuff. God didn't need stuff. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33 puts it like this. The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. And when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. Now we've heard this chapter and this verse so many times that we may be, in a sense, desensitized to this. But isn't this amazing when you think about this? Doesn't this, doesn't this testify to, to God's great power? For example, God, God just spoke and all the stars came into existence. Children, do you know how many stars there are in our universe? If you were to guess, what would you think? How many stars are in our universe? Our universe contains approximately 200 billion trillion stars. Now, I don't, I don't even really understand that. I can't calculate that. 200 billion trillion stars. Now, in thinking about that number, one author says this. He says, consider the power of God in creation. If a computer were observing 10 million stars per second, it would still take 63 million years to count all the stars. In other words, you've got this computer, and this computer is, is counting all the stars in our universe, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and on and on it goes. And, and this computer is, is so fast that it can count 10 million stars in a second. That's fast. It would take that computer 63 million years to count all the stars. One thing that Genesis 1 should do one thing the account of creation should do is it should leave us in awe of God's power. It should leave us marveling at who he is. Children, God spoke. He, he just spoke. And, and all the stars came into existence. Years ago, there was a man named J.B. Phillips who wrote a book. The book is entitled, Your God is Too Small. And Phillips' point in, in that book is that, that too often we, we kind of bring God down to our level. That, that we tend to, to view God as just a, a little bit bigger and a little more powerful than we are. Martin Luther once, once said this to someone. He said, your thoughts of God are too human. If our thoughts of God are too human, if, if, we, if we kind of bring God down to our level, if our God is too small, 
we need, we need to capture a grander vision of who God is. We need to stand in, in awe of his greatness and his power. And that's one of the things that this chapter helps us with. God spoke this world into being. And, and here we are reminded that, that God is not of this world. God transcends this world. He is eternal. He is uncreated. He is all-powerful. And, and this impacts how we view our world. This, this world didn't just evolve by chance. Life is not this, this meaningless, random thing that just happened. God spoke all things into existence by his powerful word. And, and again, this is not just mere theology or doctrine or something to discuss and debate. This should change us. This should impact us when we, when we understand the power of God in creation. When we are weary, when we are discouraged, when we are like God's people we looked at in the book of Haggai who felt that they just couldn't go any further, when we feel like that, we can turn to God for the strength that we need. And the God who created all things by his powerful spoken word will give us the strength that we need. That's what this chapter, one of the things that this chapter should do to us. We need to believe the promise that God gives us in Isaiah chapter 40. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Brothers and sisters, when you're weak and weary, you can turn to the God who created all things and he will give you strength. Or when you are worried that our world is out of control, when you are anxious about the future, when there's something in your life or your circumstances that, that you know you can't do anything about, we need to remember who created this world. And we need to remember who holds this world in his all-powerful hands. How did this world get here? God created it. He created it out of nothing by his spoken word. Second question, how did we get here? As you read through Genesis 1, you see the different things that God created on each day. So if you have your Bible open, you'll notice on day one, God creates light. Day two, he creates the atmosphere. Day three, he creates dry ground and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and sea creatures. Day six, land animals, but God saves the best for last. Take a look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We did not come up out of some primordial ooze. We did not evolve from some lower life form. Man was created by the triune God as the very pinnacle of God's creation. And man was made in the image of God. Now many people in our society and our world today reject the idea of man as the crown of God's creation, as the pinnacle of God's creation. And and they reject this idea of the uniqueness of man as being made in the image of God. You have people today who see man as no different than an animal. One example of this is a, a woman by the name of Ingrid Newkirk, Ingrid Newkirk is the the president of PETA. PETA is um, the uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals. One time, Ingrid Newkirk said this, a rat is a pig is a boy. In other words, there's no difference between a rat or a pig or a boy. You have groups today that, that say eating meat is murder. I read an account the other day where, where someone was saying that uh, killing chickens is no different than the Holocaust. It's insane. Killing chickens is the same as, as killing human beings. Now, now what you believe about creation and what you believe about man's origin That's going to have a direct effect on on how you view this world and how you view other people. Douglas Kelly is a a theologian who has written a lot about creation. And, And he writes this. He says, There is no doubt that the biblical vision of man as God's creature, whom he made in his own image, has had the most powerful effect on human dignity, on liberty, on the expansion of the rights of the individual, on political systems, on the development of medicine, on every other area of culture. How different, Kelly says, from the humanistic viewpoint of man as merely an evolved creature, not made in God's image because there is no God. Such a premise has enabled the Marxist totalitarian states conveniently to liquidate millions of their citizens because of the assumption that there is no transcendent person in whose image those citizens are created, no being to give those citizens a dignity and a right to exist beyond what the state determines. In other words, Kelly is saying there is a, there is a, a drastic difference between a biblical view of creation, a biblical view of man, and a humanistic evolutionary view of man. If man is not the crown of God's creation, if man is not created in God's image, man has no ultimate dignity. And and man can be disposed of whenever he's not useful or whenever he's not wanted. 
What do you think allows an abortion doctor to sleep at night? But a view like this. Scripture tells us that we are made in God to worship him. Children, your life has meaning. Don't listen to our culture that says you're no different than an animal. Your life has meaning. Your life has purpose. There is no ultimate meaning or purpose in an atheistic worldview. There is no ultimate meaning or purpose in an evolutionary worldview. God created all things. He created man as the crown of his creation. And at the end of all of that, God looks at his creation and what does he say? God looks at all that he has made and the Bible says God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. Sadly, God's good creation was plunged into sin and death when Adam fell. And as you know very, very well, we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is broken by sin. Now thankfully, that's not the end of the story, is it? God sent his son, Jesus, to this dark, sin-filled world and he lived for us, he, he died for us, he rose again in history so that we would be reconciled to our creator. Have you been reconciled to the one who created you? Have you come to know the, the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ? Yes, God's good creation was broken. It was marred. But God sent his son to reconcile the world to himself. Do you know Christ? In a moment, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and the, the Lord's Supper is a, a visible presentation of the gospel. The Lord's Supper is, is saying to us, the only way to a, a right relationship with your creator, the one who made you, the one who made all things, the only way to a right relationship with him is to come to him through faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. How thankful we are this morning that our creator is also our redeemer. The one who saved us from our sin and from the despair of this world. This is an important chapter, isn't it? Children, I'm glad. I was a little worried because for a while nobody had given me this chapter. And one of you did. And this is an important chapter for us to understand because it, it shows us how our world came to be. It shows us who we are. Maybe you've heard the name Carl Sagan before. Carl Sagan was a 20th century American astronomer, scientist. He retired, you die, and that's it. Children, how different is the teaching of the Bible? The God of the Bible is the living God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things and through Jesus he is the redeemer of his people.
He's created you with a purpose. He's created you with meaning, and that is to bring him glory. When you go to school tomorrow, children, God has created you with the purpose of bringing glory to him. Your life has meaning. Your life has significance. When we go to work tomorrow, when we interact with people tomorrow, our lives have meaning. They have purpose. And we are headed somewhere. We are headed to an eternity where because of God's grace to us in Jesus, we will be with him forever. An important chapter that we understand. An important chapter that we stand for this truth in the culture in which we live that God is the creator of all things. And he created you and I with purpose. And that is to glorify him and to love him and to know him and to serve him through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opening chapter of your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the, the comfort that it gives to us. Lord, you are the almighty God. You are the one who spoke all things into existence. And when we are weak, when we are tired, when we are discouraged, when we fear where this world is headed, we can turn to you and we can know that all things are in your powerful hand. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the giving us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we may now partake together, we may rejoice in the fact that Jesus has brought us to you, that you are not only our creator, but you are also our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together number 252. Number 252, this is my Father's world. This is a... A hymn, of course, that speaks of creation, reminds us that God is the great king and that no matter what we may go through in this life, that even when the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. We'll sing uh, the three stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I would like to read from page 50 in the Forms and Prayers book. To all of you who have with godly sorrow confessed your sins and who have affirmed true faith in Christ, the promise of Jesus is sure. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. For the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. While remaining bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united to the reality they signify that we do not doubt but joyfully believe that we receive in this meal by the Spirit through faith nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For all who live in rebellion against God and in unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you do not yet confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under his gracious reign, We admonish you to abstain. But all who repent and believe are invited to this sacred meal, not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table, for it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of his unchangeable promise. So come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How good God is that he has given us a a tangible witness of the gospel. That he has given us bread and wine uh, so that we might again remember and and be nourished on the truth that, that Jesus came for sinners. And we're going to bow before the Lord and ask him to bless our our time at the table this morning. So let's pray together.
The bread which we break is a communion of the body of Jesus Christ. Let us now take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Jesus not only gave his body, but he also shed his blood. And so I invite the elders to come as we distribute the wine. Wine is in the outer rings and grape juice is in the center.
The cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks is a communion of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of Jesus was given for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Father, again, we thank you for the blessing of this meal. We pray that we would now leave here today thankful for your love for us, thankful for the gift of your son, and seeking to honor you in the world in which we live. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing together number 496, My Jesus, I Love Thee, a song of of love for the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. We're going to sing all the stanzas. Uh, The communion offering will be taken for interfaith, and so I will ask that you remain seated on the first three stanzas, and then we'll stand on the fourth stanza of 496. Five seventy is our doxology uh, tonight. We are back at six o'clock um, to look at uh, another uh, frequently taken out of context Bible verse. We're doing that on Sunday nights, and so we invite you to be back here at six tonight for worship. And before we sing the doxology, God gives to His people His blessing, and so receive His blessing now. The love of God the Father. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.